Welcome to episode 12 of the WIMP podcast. This is the final episode of season one. This is going to be my last before I take a break for the holiday seasons. As I mentioned before, I need some time to also think about what I want to do. I will preview that a little bit, at least some initial thoughts about what I think season two might look like at the end of this podcast. Um, but before I get too far into it, uh, you can reach me at wimp.podcast at gmail.com. As always, uh, the whole point of this podcast initially as it was conceived was for this to be a community project, uh, hoping to hear from some of you. And I've heard from many of you offline uh, in person, which is great. Those of you in my immediate circles, um, but those of you listening out there in other spaces, if you would like to contribute your thoughts about the things that we're talking about, whether you agree or disagree with me, I'd love to hear from you. As always, you can find us on Instagram and at least for the next 24 hours, Twitter. And we'll talk about that today, as you uh, probably gleaned from the title of this episode. The end of all tweets. This is going to be an interesting and fun one. And I think it's going to be more than you might expect as far as the way that this conversation goes. Um, not going to do a um, what we learned this week, what deserves a platform. Um, I'm kind of scrambling to pull this together. If you watched the video that I posted on Instagram uh, last week, I think um, I had some technical difficulties trying to do this episode. Uh, and so I'm really, really just trying to squeeze this in before um, the holidays. Today is a very special day for me. I get to see my kid as one of the leads in Midnight Summer's Dream tonight uh, for the high school play. Very excited about that. Um, and then we roll right into Thanksgiving, uh, my parents' anniversary, Christmas, and it's just going to be chaos. So squeezing this in as fast as I can. Uh, the other casualty uh, in relation to that is there will be no Beats with B in this final episode. Um, I want to give a special shout out to Brian uh, and the work that he put into uh, for those segments. Um, if you go back and you listen to the songs that we chose, they're really powerful. Um, and I do love that Brian is drawing from uh, hip hop uh, for those segments, because as the nature of this podcast is to um, demystify the white man of privilege, um, that is a genre of music that uh, is often misunderstood, misrepresented, uh, or what have you uh, in these circles. So glad to kind of shed some light on the really wonderful um, contributions to art and music coming from that scene. Um, Okay, so um, I don't think I have any other major announcements before I roll into this. So, wow, Twitter, what's going on? Elon Musk, uh, if you are uh, if you are a citizen of the Twitterverse, or if you're following the news, you've probably come to see that Elon Musk, a billionaire owner of Tesla, uh, took over Twitter. Um, and then abruptly started firing people, uh, started blowing up the platform with just kind of really constant, um, almost childish interactions, uh, with people on there. Um, 
you know, he's going to reinstate uh, a lot of the people that were uh, banned from Twitter for uh, essentially just abusing people um, in ways that go beyond public speech. Um, but I'll talk about that uh, a little bit more. Um, and then uh, just yesterday uh, with the 5 p.m. deadline, he gave his employees 24 hours uh, with a deadline that said, you know, if you want to stay with what he called Twitter 2.0, be prepared for some hardcore, you know, aggressive work environment, you know, meaning long hours uh, with the expectation of uh, high immediate results. So, um, yeah, as as expected, there has been a mass exodus of Twitter employees as of 5 p.m. yesterday. Um Twitter is not something that typically I think in and of itself falls within the context of what I'm trying to do with this show. So I'm not, I'm not too concerned about Twitter in and of itself. Um, but I do think that there is some crossover in particular as of late. Um, and that this kind of gives us an opportunity to kind of, um, think about ourselves in the public sphere, who controls the public sphere, what its purpose is, what it looks like, and how it might look different. So there has been some undeniable good that has come from Twitter, surprisingly enough. Um, there's there's plenty to look at that is reprehensible, and I'll get to that in just a second. But um, there have been a tremendous number of voices that have found a platform and found an audience sharing really important information or, or perspectives or viewpoints that traditionally they have been um, barred from or, or if not intentionally barred, at least not given access right to the central main uh, forms of media uh, as we understand them. Um, and so um, you know, things like people in, in oppressive regimes tweeting out the status of what's going on with them, at least as long as they're, uh, before their governments shut down internet access or whatever, um, marginalized communities, whether that be people of color, LGBTQ plus, um, immigrants, women, take your pick. Uh, the spiritually marginalized. Um, Twitter has been a space where they've been able to find uh, fellow travelers, find empathetic voices, uh, and share their stories, share their lives. Um, that's an incredibly powerful good. Uh, that was, that is, in my estimation, that is the ultimate expression of what we would hope for from a public sphere. The public sphere is something that we think of as this is the space where people come together to talk about things. People come together to work out their issues. Um, the public sphere has morphed over the years, and it always has had a level of exclusivity to it. The public sphere uh, used to consist of, you know, like cafes. Uh, you know, public meeting spaces where essentially in public social life prior to uh, really the 20th century, uh, predominantly men and in the 
the more powerful nations of the world, white men, would gather and they would talk through issues and then they would figure out how to shape their communities, how to shape their families, how to shape their world in this public sphere. And while it was definitely a closed club that you didn't have access to if you were uh, a woman, a child, a person of color, what have you. In that space, there was the seed of a positive, which was the ability for people to come together and to work out their differences in a rational manner. Here's my argument. Here's the evidence in support of my argument. This is why I think we should think this way or act this way. And then somebody else would have the opportunity to say, well, I don't think the same way. And this is the evidence for why I have my disagreements with with what you're proposing. Here's my evidence, or here's the the problems that I find in your evidence. Um, and so there were the seeds for a good there, right? This is ultimately the space where community is possible. Community as opposed to hierarchy, right? Hierarchy would be the king, uh, the oligarch, the dictator, the leader, the father of the house, the pastor, take your pick, would say, this is how we do things. Get in line. I have authority. Oftentimes that authority would be uh, underscored by some, some form of alleged, you know, uh, divine right or divine approval. God ordained that I am the one who calls the shots. And so this is how this goes. Historically speaking, almost always and forever, those hierarchical modes uh, have bad consequences, right? Um, power, absolute power corrupts absolutely. The evidence for that is undeniable. You can see that happening in arguably Twitter right now with Elon Musk, but sips coffee. Um, but the public sphere is vitally important. And over time, that public sphere has grown. More people have had access to it. Typically, it's opened up first along class lines to a degree. As long as you were white and had the same religious beliefs as me, you were allowed into this space. And then it would open up some more as some forms of religious tolerance or forms of uh, community uh, structure that allowed for a little bit more parity of voice among the classes. Um, and then there was, you know, um, obviously the press, but I wouldn't say that the press is the public sphere. Freedom of the press was an effort to to improve, to, to expand that public sphere, right? So freedom of the press allowed for uh, those who weren't government sanctioned voices to have a space that they could print and widely disseminate their ideas. Right. And so that's a form of the public sphere and it, and it was growing, but again, those, those are also vehicles that are controlled by editors, by owners, um, who would shape what comes out of those outlets according to their own wishes. And we can see that in its most recent and most, um, aggressive, egregious 
depending on how you see it form with Murdoch, uh, Rupert Murdoch's empire of uh, news outlets. But, but before that, right, obviously, William Randolph Hearst back in the day um, with the the father of modern, you know, uh, press. But um, so, yeah, so one of the undeniable goods of Twitter was that it expanded this public sphere in a way that really mattered. Of course, there are limitations. Not everybody has digital access. But if you had digital access, you had a phone, you had a laptop, you had something you could get onto Twitter, you could share your voice with the world. And the nice thing about Twitter, as opposed to a blog, or as opposed to say this podcast, that if I'm lucky you're listening to right now, Twitter, you know, could be seen by everybody. You could use hashtags as a way to kind of put yourself out there into spaces where people were looking for information on certain topics. Again, not perfect. And of course, algorithms would come into play, particularly heavy handedly in Facebook. Um, but in other places, Twitter included, they would come into play and shape what you'd see. But um, it was there. So an undeniable good of Twitter. It was that it was a space, it was a democratizing space of information and it expanded the, the public good. And I think for that, many of us are kind of sad to see it go. So I'm going to take a short break and then we'll talk about the undeniable bad of Twitter. Okay, so Twitter obviously has a very, very dark side to it. And there were efforts in some cases to kind of curb that. Um, you know, for example, um, Twitter would add labels saying that this information that somebody is saying is, you know, false or it's, or it's unverified as true information, right? It's particularly in the fake news era of uh, the Trump era, um, you know, and of course, it, you know, associated with that, the bot era where, um, you know, Twitter gets flooded by, uh, you know, bad actors who create these bots that uh, basically make these posts that uh, troll people, pass on bad information, are intended to to create chaos. And we say this with the lead up to elections, Russian interference with the 2016 election. Uh, obviously, uh, I think by the 2020 election, that was controlled a little bit more, but they're still out there. I think we were aware of it. So, you know, Twitter employees tried to, to curb that a little bit, but um, I mean, it's still there. I think you just have bad actors, people who are out there who just say reprehensible things, people who go out there to hurt people, to harm people. Um, in some cases, Twitter mods caught and would censor either by removing the account, blocking the account, people who are guilty of, um, you know, hate crime level speech, uh, which is incited to, to, to cause somebody intentional harm. 
Um, but that's a tricky thing in the United States because one of the things that we value wholeheartedly is free speech. Um, the question, of course, is does free speech stop and start there or are there expectations for what is, um, you know, respectable or um, healthy fair speech, right? Is it fair speech to, uh, you know, basically spew anti-Semitism, racism, um, homophobia, things like that. Is it okay to, to spark up violence against people who you disagree with for whatever reason? Right. And so there are laws that have been passed, anti-defamation laws, um, hate crime laws, things like that. So I think as a society in America, we, we realize, no, there are limits to this, right? You can't just carte blanche, say whatever you want. Um, but Twitter for a long time, and because it's just so massive and there's so many users, it's easy for those spaces to get in there, those bad actors to get in there and do damage before we have an opportunity to catch them. Um, teen bullying moved from the hallway to the internet, right? And uh, we hear in the news of terrible tragedies of, of young people taking their lives because of the abuse that they receive uh, on these platforms. Um, sexual exploitation, right? So that is also something that this platform can be used for. Um, you know, I know that there are people out there who say, you know, my, my sexual expression or whatever is my business, but it's, it, it's undeniable that the porn industry creates violence against women. It, it supports violence against women. Um, there's ample evidence of that. Um, and more importantly, you know, Twitter is a space where if you are a parent who is not aware of your child's internet behaviors, Twitter is a space where you could stumble across just live feeds, like videos of porn, uh, accounts of, of people sharing their, you know, their business. And on the one hand, in our society, unfortunately, um, in my opinion, um, there is a business for that. And so that's a space where uh, people will market their, you know, um, paid for, you know, online uh, services with regards to um, sexual content. Um, but that's a space on Twitter that is freely unregulated. Uh, you have to be really sharp on that. You have to protect yourself against that if that's something that you wish to avoid. And if that's something that you want your children to avoid, you have to be diligent in that as well. Um, I would say that that's a bad that Twitter represents. So there's, there's you know, undeniable... I mean, any, anybody that you listen to or that you, you follow on Twitter, you know, at, at some point you're, you'll see at least people with... with good intentions, you'll see them say, right, Twitter is awesome. Twitter is also terrible. Um, and in that sense, it's Twitter is a kind of uh, a very good technical, digital uh, metaphor for humanity. Humanity can be, can be incredibly beautiful and incredibly good. Humanity can be incredibly dark and incredibly evil. And I would say that Twitter 
as a product, as a creation of humanity, most fully realizes that. And so there is undeniable good and there is undeniable bad that is associated with Twitter. I talked earlier about the importance of Twitter as a public sphere. Um, and I, I think it's good that way. One of the, the bad things that happens uh, in recent years as these platforms matured um, was the creation of these algorithms that tries to feed you content that will keep you there, right? The explicit purpose is for your eyeballs to stay glued to the machine. Uh, there's a documentary on Netflix. I think it's, it was called The Social Dilemma, perhaps, um, that really outlined that in a very clear way. I mean, it wasn't produced super awesome. You know, you might find its production value lacking in terms of entertainment, but the, but the material was very rich, very data-backed. Um, and it showed that these social media sites are designed to keep you there. You are the product, right? What's being sold is your eyeballs. You are being sold to advertisers, to these other groups who want you to be there. And as you feed it, it will feed you more of that, right? So you say, I like this thing. Well, then they'll say, oh, we're going to send you more of this thing. And so the problem with that is then what happens is this public sphere where I'm hearing from people that I agree with, I'm also hearing from people I don't agree with. As I start to curate that algorithm by telling the software what I like, it starts to create these echo chambers where it's only feeding me what I like because it knows it'll keep me there. I mean, how many of you saw like, you know, you, you'll see something that you disagree with that you think is just, uh, you know, absolutely reprehensible. And so you, you go away, you sh I'm shutting that off. I'm, I'm leaving, whatever. You're, you're going against the business model when you make that decision. And so what was the promise of an incredible public sphere where ideas were pitted against each other and a public arena for community discussion and shaping and realization now becomes this echo chamber. And when you look at the last few years, when we've gotten really toxic with, with the, the peddling of false information, and as Twitter tried to be a responsible member or curator of the public sphere, and it would, uh, you know, curtail people's efforts or ability to spew nonsense into that sphere, while well, those people then would leave and go make their own echo chambers, right? Truth, that social, whatever, is one of those spaces where conservatives felt like, well, well, I'm not getting a fair shake in this Twitterverse. So we're going to go make our own space where people who like us, people who agree with us, people who want to hear what we have to say and who we want to hear say the same things that we're saying, we can all just go into our own sandbox and pat each other on the backs. And those echo chambers are created in that way. Facebook, the echo chambers, I think, I actually jumped the Facebook ship seven or eight years ago now when it started to become really toxic during the Obama administration. Um, but I think Facebook, to my knowledge, still largely curates its own uh, echo chambers through uh, highly evolved algorithms. I don't, I don't know that they were as active as Twitter in trying to legitimate, you know, good information. And that's one of the other big uh, things that's going on right now with uh, Twitter as Elon Musk re-envisions it 
is now, you know, it used to be you had to verify, you know, go through a, a series of checks to verify this is legitimately me. Uh, and so when you see something come out tweeted in my name, if there's a blue check next to it, you can trust that it's me. And I'm telling you that that verification process is legitimate. I'm the executive director of a digital humanities organization, and we tried for years to get our account verified and we couldn't do it. Like we couldn't cross that hurdle, which is on the one hand, frustrating and ridiculous. Right. But on the other hand, though, it, sh it just shows you the bar for like, if I'm this person, you know, verifying who I am, right. It's there. Uh, well, now Elon Musk is saying, Hey, we're going to charge $8. If you pay $8 a month, you can have the blue check. What that does in real time is say, if you pay me money, you can be whoever you want to be. And then we'll lock you in as that person. Now there's people bickering like, well, I wanted to be able to change my name. And that used to be a fun thing. But the larger and more problematic issue with this is now anybody can say that they are anybody. As long as they're paying money, the people see it. They see a blue check and say, oh, it must be the real person. Right. That's that's problematic. Um, and I think that's going to feed this deterioration of the public sphere. Uh, and feed more of this echo chamber type logic. And so as I transition here out of the good and the bad of Twitter, right? What we do understand now is that Elon Musk is largely destroying it from the inside uh, after two waves of highly publicized first firings and then uh, kind of forced resignations. Um, the the people behind twitter the people behind making sure that it operated as a good citizen in the public space are gone and now elon is who has you know very publicly made uh it known that he is in line with these more of these kind of um extreme right-wing voices that had been um you know curated by twitter in the past he's like welcome back people right the people that i want to hear i want to give you this space on twitter and we're going to make twitter that space um you know, it, it. I don't know that if it's this is super public knowledge, but if you haven't been aware of this, right, it should be telling that one of Elon Musk's primary um, backers, financial backers in his Twitter takeover was Saudi Arabia. And so we know how much they value uh, the free sharing of ideas, right? And so it's just a convoluted mess. But anyway, Twitter is melting down. Many feel like its demise is imminent. Of course, it'll still be there. It'll just operate in a different way. It might become the new truth social or some other ver version of that, right? It'll be just like MySpace, which was the thing before Facebook, before Twitter. My MySpace is still out there. It's evolved into something different. It's very heavily music-centered now. Bands use that space quite a bit. But it's not the same space, right? And so there's a lesson here. One, Twitter will probably continue in some fashion. It'll look very differently. But also these social media platforms, no matter how powerful we think they are, ultimately they are all fleeting and passing. And so our search for the, the public sphere, which is what I would think we all want these, these social media spaces to be, continues. And so as of today, November 18th, 2022, one of the leading contenders for becoming that new space is a place called Mastodon. Mastodon looks kind of like Twitter, acts kind of like Twitter, but it's very different in that rather than being a privately owned, 
hierarchical organization where there is a leader that kind of controls everything and then the staff that works under him. Mastodon is a federated space. And what that means is anybody can create a Mastodon server and you can federate with or connect with other Mastodon servers. And so rather than one person owning it, anybody can own it. Uh, and so it is a an open access, open and available uh, social media platform that's designed to flatten out the hierarchy and create more of a, a federated space. And I think that's really important because hierarchy is what feeds a lot of what's toxic in that public sphere. And you can see in the most recent, um, you know, if you're paying attention to largely Twitter, but it's, I think it's starting to creep into the news a little bit, but the rise of white Christian nationalism. And if they're careful with themselves, they'll remove the white and just say Christian nationalism. But if you read any of their literature, you'll see very quickly that it's really white Christian nationalism. This is one of those hierarchical type of worldviews that would use uh, bullying, uh, you know, appeals to uh, a version of hierarchical uh, tradition uh, to get people to fall in line and realize their vision of a largely white male led Christian space or society. Um, I mean, they're very public about laws against things like, you know, I mean, so, so if you are familiar with The Handmaid's Tale, this, you know, uh, dystopian view of a future where the United States is taken over by religious zealots and renamed Gideon and women are largely servants, many of which are handmaids basically uh, made for breeding and confined to serving as uh, breeders of children. Um, if you look into the white Christian nationalist language, it's that first step towards that form of a fascist religious worldview, which is quite frankly terrifying. And so potentially one of the other goods of the destruction of Twitter is that those voices are harder to find. Um, and, you know, I think it's important for us to understand that, um, that these are, are these, these aren't just, uh, you know, extreme nutjobs out there. Right. So, um, Jamar Tisby is a scholar and activist that I follow, uh, who's done great things, uh, in terms of raising awareness. One of his most recent books, um, which you might have seen me tout on my, Instagram channel, um, the church, the American church's complicity in racism. Um, he posted something on Twitter recently where he, he showed how the, uh, head of the Southern Baptist conventions, uh, chief intern is one of these white nationalists, uh, who actually are white Christian nationalists who, uh, ha has recently published a book called in, in defense of Christian nationalism. So, um, these things I have access to legitimate hierarchical sources of power. And so this isn't just fringe anymore. And so hopefully with the, you know, the undoing of Twitter of hierarchy of controlling language, perhaps maybe that voice gets softened. Um, 
But this this move to to Mastodon potentially gives us an opportunity to move from uh, this this hierarchical, top down paternalistic um, type of structure into a space that that reimagines the public sphere in this kind of federated way, a movement from me to we, um, which I've talked about in the past and is super important to me, um, and is really a part of. Uh, ultimately, it helps explain my spiritual journey, um, which I think is something that I will tap into a little bit more. I've hinted at it here and there. I think episode two of this season, um, the feminine and the divine, I think yeah, I, I most explicitly got into it. But, you know, it's popped in and out throughout the season. I think season two, I think I'll probably give an episode where I just put my cards on the table. Um, so look for that. But um Ultimately, my spiritual journey has been the desire to move from an ex- spiritual experience that moves from me to we, from a concern of my personal well-being, my personal salvation, my personal righteousness, worthiness, to a community-connected, community-shared, right? Um, and as I've said before this season, uh, the AA community of which I'm a member in sobriety, uh, really most strikingly uh, curates this me-to-we mentality. I mean, the whole point of it is you go into a space where you realize you're not the worst person on the planet, that there's a bunch of us, and we are all in here together to make each other better, uh, to lift each other up. People coming from all different walks of life, wealthy people, poor people, people with criminal records, people who were fortunate to avoid the criminal records, men, women, right? People of different races, ethnicities, religion, right? One of the core tenets of AA is that it's based on developing a relationship with God as you understand them, right? This not this, you fit into this box or you're out. This us versus them mentality that shapes uh, so much of uh, our world today, whether that be politics, whether that be religion, you know, you're in or you're out. It's us versus them. It's very dualistic. Um, and so I, my hope is that this move away from Twitter to this federated space of Mastodon, if it, if it plays itself out, right? I mean, we're still early in the, in the tweetpocalypse. Um, but hopefully, you know, this is just a part of this, uh, evolution of awareness that's happening in our society and in in the people in this world where we're starting to wake up a little bit. And I hope we are waking up. Um, and so the end of all tweets, right? What I want to leave you with in this shorter abbreviated episode, this final episode of season one is that we need to be okay with hearing other people's voices. We need to be okay with being in spaces where we disagree with other people's voices. We need to be okay with realizing that different experiences, different worldviews are a part of the intentional design. Diversity If you just look around you in the natural world, it is a part of the 
design. Sorry, I just got a phone call coming in there. I have to call that back. Hello, Natalie. That was you. <laughs> um, moving from me to we. Moving from self-centered focus, even dressed up in a religious language or a political language that say that it's bigger than that. Ultimately, this is about moving from the primacy of the individual to uh, the primacy of the community. And I want to double down on that into season two. Season two uh, will be starting up in likely January, maybe not the first week of January, but look forward to start coming out in January. I'm going to be talking about a little bit, as I mentioned before, some spiritual things where I've evolved on that, just having a conversation, not trying to proselytize anybody to my way of thinking. But I think it's useful when we share the way that we think about these things so that other people can realize that they're not alone in the way that they're thinking. That if they have questions, that that's okay. Other people have questions. That, um, you know, evolution and growth is essential. Season two will obviously deal with some more evolution and growth. Growth, and I think season two will most certainly talk about me to we. And then finally, one of the things that I'm realizing as I get to the end of this season is as I'm looking to unpack the power and the prevalence of white privilege, white male privilege, and trying to deconstruct it. I think we've listened to other voices and I will continue to create a platform for other voices. But I think we need to start asking questions of the people who benefit from that and people who are blinded to that, uh, not intentionally, but they're just ignorant, like a fish swimming in the ocean. It doesn't realize that water is what they swim in. It's just what they know. Um, I think we need to take that to heart and think through that. So anyway, this is the end of season one. I hope it was a, I hope it was a good ride for you. I hope you learned some things. Uh, I hope to hear from some of you, perhaps uh, gmailwimp.podcast at gmail.com. Go back, listen to some other episodes if you haven't yet. Um, and I look forward to uh, to sharing some more with you in 2023. Take care, everybody. Sleep.